Grab your Bibles, turn with me to the third chapter of the book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 3. We pick up where we left off, where we've been introduced to the new king, King Solomon. We're going to hear a fascinating account tonight. Before we do that, we'll ask the Lord to bless us with his help to understand. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence here by your Holy Spirit, and would you please open the eyes of our understanding so that we can make sense of the truths here before us and uh, individualize those truths, speak to our hearts, and give us the grace that we may, might obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, how many of you have ever taken an IQ test? Raise your hand. Uh-huh, how many of you have had an SAT? Right? Everybody, just about. Or college entrance exams. Yes, indeed. Well, uh, those kinds of tests are supposed to measure your intelligence quota. Uh, but let me assure you uh, tonight from a biblical perspective that these kinds of tests, biblically speaking, are severely overrated. Now, lots of so-called smart people do incredibly dumb things, and that's why I make that statement. Now, there's a vast difference between um, speaking about just sheer knowledge and mental capacities and the concept of biblical wisdom. Uh, have you ever noticed that the English word smart is not in the Bible? Have you ever noticed that? I have. <laughs> because smart is irrelevant in God's kingdom. It's all about wisdom. It's all about the application of knowledge, not about intellectual uh, or academic prowess or ability. So uh, it's very interesting. The idea, of course, is wise or foolish uh, because a little child with faith will be uh, more wise than a scientist without faith. And so it's not how much you know, and uh, it's not how sharp or quick you process things. Uh, it's how you apply knowledge and to manage your life and relationships and day-to-day -day living with God's precepts. Uh, the Hebrew word for wisdom, and we aren't talking about wisdom because of that infamous uh, story about uh, Solomon and the dream and asking for wisdom and Solomon ending up to become one of the wisest men that ever lived. But the Hebrew word for wisdom tonight uh, means capable of judging, capable of judging. In other words, uh, in a volatile situation, you're capable of knowing, should I speak? Uh, should I hold my tongue? Uh, do I answer directly or indirectly? Uh, sweetly or firmly? Um, to see past the actual words that are being used and to the actual thing that the person is really saying or needing. This is called discernment or understanding. I, I, I ran across a great definition. Figuring out people and knowing yourself and understanding what God wants, and in every situation, choosing what will bring about the highest good and the greatest peace, 
and blessing for everyone involved. That's wisdom. And so while King David was known for his military might, uh, his son, who's just ascended to the throne to replace him because he just died, um, he's not a man of war. He's a man of wisdom. He's not, he's not a soldier, King Solomon. He's a scholar. So last time, for context, chapter 2, we've met the new king, Solomon. His name means peace, by the way. And uh, we've seen some of the wise ways he's already eliminated some of his enemies, some of the threats to the kingdom. Now here, in chapter 3, let's get better acquainted with the king. The king who wrote 3,000 proverbs, we only have... uh, 915, he didn't write all the Proverbs, but he, mo- he wrote most of the Proverbs. So they're uh, one-third, really, of what he has written. Did you know that uh, King Solomon wrote a 1,000 Psalms? And we only have two of them, uh, Psalm 72 and Psalm 127. But he wrote a 1,000 of them, very uh, wise man. So we're going to get acquainted with him and kind of see how he got to be so wise and an, an example of him in action using that wisdom. Oh, first, a few verses of context here, starting at verse 1. Now, Solom- Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David, which is Jerusalem until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord. It it took him, by the way, seven years to build the temple of the Lord and 13 years to build his own palace. It's kind of a misstep right there. Uh, And the wall around Jerusalem. Now verse two. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because a temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father David, except that, except, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on the altar. So they're having a little celebration, thanking God and asking him for his blessing. Let's pause there. If you're taking notes, we're going to have three D words tonight. So the first one is Solomon's duplicity. Now, the word duplicity just means kind of where we get the word duplicate. So it kind of means double-hearted. So in other words, where it says uh, Solomon loves God and he loves to obey, except. And so we have kind of a duplicious kind of problem in the heart of Solomon. Now, you didn't think that a discussion about wisdom was going to be easy to understand, did you? Because right here, we're, gonna, we're thrown a curveball already, because what do we have? We have a guy who's supposedly the smartest guy in the world, or he will become, and he's already pretty wise, but he's going to end up to be kind of a fool. So we're kind of perplexed, and, and the, the scriptures want you to be because it's gonna make a point that it doesn't matter how much wisdom you have if you don't use it. You have to use what you have, or it's no good that you have it, amen? So we open kind of with a puzzle then, you know, uh, as one writer 
uh, put it, a Presbyterian theologian, uh, his name's Frederick Buckner, he said, Solomon was one of the wisest fools who ever wore a crown. Now, it's just terrible. It's terrible. You know, I was talking to Pastor Jim today. Just, how's it going? What are we talking about? And, and he said, do you have to, do, oh, we have to dive into the sad part of the story. Can't we just tell the story here? And I said, no, but check it out. Because it starts out with a warning that this guy loved the Lord, his God, with almost all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that's the open door for him to to live really a life that ends up uh, really crashing and burning. He he has a terrible ending. Chapter 11, very sad for the wisest man on earth. And so, you know, it's kind of a paradox, like I said. Uh, A paradox is, is, I have the definition, any person, thing, or situation exhibiting an apparently contradictory nature. In other words, the cobbler's kids don't have the shoes, right? Or the nutritionist is caught eating at McDonald's. (laughs) Or the CPA overdraws his account. And now we've got the wisest guy in the world acting like a fool. So even the wisest guy in the world, as I said, needs to apply the wisdom in his own heart to be able to enjoy its benefits. So a few warning signs right off the jump. Number one, verse one, Solomon makes a treaty with Pharaoh by becoming his son-in-law. That's right, Egypt, the ancient enemies of the people of Israel. He brings his new bride to Jerusalem, he knows it's not the right thing to do, so he doesn't bring her right to where he's living. He, he has her somewhere in Jerusalem until he's done with his palace, and he's going to bring her there. Deuteron- so, so right away, the Holy Spirit's saying, he's got a problem that if he doesn't apply the wisdom that God gives him, it, uh, he's going to crash and burn. So we're going to see he's vulnerable in a certain area, and here is the area. Deuteronomy chapter 17 Verses 14 through 20 commands kings of Israel not to multiply wives. And so uh, we're not going to get the whole story until the end of his life, how he crashes and burns, but let me read a little bit of it to you, chapter 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. See where it started. The first thing he did was marry Pharaoh's daughter. Up till now, we we know he might have one wife, but this is the beginning of his life. And so it says, besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, Ammon, uh, Edom, Sidon, and from among the Hittites. The Lord had clearly instructed his people not to intermarry with those nations because the women they married would lead them to worship their gods. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. Sure enough, they led his heart away from the Lord. At the end, they turned his heart to worship their gods instead of trusting only in the Lord his God. Solomon worshiped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Thus Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. And so, really, it just kind of seems like Solomon is going to marry every petty ruler's pretty daughter. 
to kind of make a treaty with all of his enemies around him, and, and uh, he does that quite a bit. So in this one area of marrying unbelievers and then letting them turn their, uh, his heart away from the Lord, uh, we see a great object lesson. Even Nehemiah in chapter 13, when Nehemiah comes back from Persia, which is modern-day Iran, when Nehemiah comes back on a mission to rebuild the wall, he says to the Jews that he finds there uh, in Jerusalem, he, he finds that the men have married foreign wives. It's not so much the problem that they're foreigners, it was that they were unbelievers and they had other gods, occult practices and things like that were the problem. And so Nehemiah grabs him and he starts beating on these guys and he says, wasn't it because of these kinds of interfaith marriages that King Solomon sinned? Nehemiah yelling at the guys there, the remnant. Uh, among the many nations, there was no king like King Solomon. He was loved by God, and God made him king over all of Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign, unbelieving women. You see, for uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 says to believers, it's still valid today, do not partner or team up with unbelievers in some sort of intimate connection. What does dark and light have in common? What does Christ have in common with the devil? Second Corinthians chapter six, Paul is asking the Holy Spirit through Paul is asking how can a believer partner with an unbeliever? Listen, sometimes by the grace of God, something redemptive happens, but usually nine times out of 10, the believer is compromised. And that's why the Lord says, watch out. So these opening verses, generally speaking, Solomon loved and feared God and showed that love, verse three, uh, by living by God's commands. He's a great man. And so this is kind of the sadness of the misstep that will lead him to crash and burn at the end. Um, Solomon is mentioned 3,000 times in the Old Testament and 12 times in the New Testament. He is in the genealogy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus himself cites Solomon as an example of splendor in, in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, not even these beautiful flowers are dressed as, as magnificently as King Solomon. Uh, he is credited for building the temple. Acts chapter seven, we hear about that. One of the colonnades in the temple is named after him, but nobody ever cites King Solomon for being a godly example, a godly man or a godly leader because he didn't always live by the wisdom he was known for. And uh, he won't end his life as nicely as it starts here. So the opening verses, I hear the Holy Spirit asking us if we're paying attention. Solomon loves the Lord. He expresses that love by following the commands with a couple of exceptions. Uh, he's got two problems, high places and pretty faces, all right? <laughs> they kind of go together, and let me explain what I mean by that. The high places were open air sanctuaries on top of hills usually, and the two problems that the Lord had with high places to worship was number one, after there was a central location to worship him in the temple, it detracted everybody from corporate worship, and so he had a problem with, the, with that. It took away from centralized worship. You could read this in Deuteronomy 
Deuteronomy chapter 12. But the big problem was that the surrounding nations would worship their detestable gods in detestable, sick, and twisted ways from those hilltops. And so the Lord said, don't you ever do that. When you go into the land, in fact, I have it right here, destroy completely all the places on the high hills and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, but you are to seek the Lord your God in the place he will choose his dwelling. And so that's from Deuteronomy chapter 12. So the high places uh, should have come down. Now, apparently, in a little confusion here, because Gibeon is a high place, and the Lord is going to give him a, a, a cool dream after he sacrifices a thousand animals there. Uh, there was a small window of time in transition from the tabernacle to the temple that they were allowed to use certain high places. And so certain high places, once the temple goes up, it's a, it's a very serious sin to worship at a high place. But right now, there's a little bit of a window. What Solomon did was he kept those high places going because his foreign wives would bring in their gods and they would say, oh, Solomon, honey, listen. I, you know, I like your God and everything, but you know, I grew up in Iran. We worship Allah and we pray three times. Of course, it wasn't happening yet but I'm using a modern day example for you. And so, you know, he, he fell for that. He fell for the conventional wisdom, and there is some wisdom in it. When mama not happy, nobody happy, right? <laughs> so she's saying, what about the prayer rug, man? Three times, let me pray toward Mecca. You know, what's wrong with Muhammad? But you got a problem with that. And not only did he let her and build the mosque, he went into the mosque and he bowed. <laughs> That's the problem. And so these are some of the things that, was, that were going on. You know what the higher wisdom would have been? A better mama unhappy than God unhappy. <laughs> Amen? One writer wrote it this way. Do the right thing and suffer gladly the ugly relational unpleasantries rather than please a person at the expense of your relationship with God, amen? Who cares what anybody else thinks? If you're doing God's will and you're pleasing your Father in heaven, let me just assure you, 5% of the people around you are never gonna be happy with you. Get over that, amen? Well, I'm sorry to be the one to tell you that, and in some cases, it's a higher percent than five. Okay, I'll just keep talking here. Moving on, the opening verses then, what, what do we take away before we move on? Solomon was a lot like you and me. He loved the Lord, he wanted to please him, but he had a couple little chinks in his armor. He loved the Lord, but that's not all he loved. And because he left the door open and wouldn't use the wisdom that God gave him freely, uh, he crashes and burns and, and finishes poorly. Now, uh, let me close with the, this idea out with Philip Ryken, one of my favorite all-time commentators. We face the same sort of temptation Solomon did every time we reach for a credit card 
get on the internet or start figuring out the, the best way to get what we want out of other people. The sins that go along with sex, money, and power that tempted Solomon have the same capacity to destroy us like they destroyed Solomon. So continuing on, I ask you to consider, do you have a high place? You know, you love the Lord, but you got this one little place over here. You keep the little flame burning right there. Don't want to tear it down completely. Let's keep a little nightlight up there just in case things don't work out this way. You know what I'm saying? All right. Verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord, so they just had this major worship service giving thanks that Solomon's now reigning and uh, happy on the throne. Uh, So at that place, after the big worship service, verse five, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, well, you have shown me great kindness. You showed great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart, you have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I'm only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you've asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment, in administrating justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never, that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings." And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke, he realized it was a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he gave a feast for all his court. Okay, so we had Solomon's duplicity and now we have Solomon's dream. Now, as I said, verse 4 had told us that there were a thousand burnt offerings. So there's a big celebration. They had a special worship uh, service to celebrate the new king, asking and seeking God's blessing on his reign. Second Chronicles chapter 1 tells us that all of Israel's leaders were at that worship service. So it was a big deal. And it was on the heels of that. He went home and he, he went to bed bone tired. Uh, a pretty amazing dream happened. And probably the most famous account associated with Solomon, this dream. And then the testing of that wisdom that follows in the uh, next paragraph. 
Uh, So here we have in verse five, God Almighty appears, maker of heaven and earth, and he says, "Uh, ask me anything, whatever you want, what do you want? I'll, I'll give it to you. Wow, that's pretty amazing. That's an amazing thing. I mean, I wonder how long he paused. I mean, you pause and think, right? I mean, I would have woken up before I figured out what to say because I'll be thinking so hard. I mean, what should I say? Is this a test? If I say this, will he say that? You know, uh, it's just amazing. You know, it's the the kind of fantasy I think everybody in this room has had. The kind of thing, you know, that happened, what was it, in May, a Florida woman uh, won the largest lottery ever, $590 million, just for her. Now, what would you do with $590 million? Do I get a minute to think about it, really? Uh, but God, when God says, what do you want from me? It's way better than $590 million because he can do the impossible. He could, he could give $590 million, but that's just the beginning of what God could do. God could, God, God could do exceedingly higher than you could ask or think. So uh, go as high as you possibly could go, that verse means. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. Go as high as you possibly can. He could go way higher than that. Well, so then you're thinking, well, I'm going to go way higher than that. Well, then he can go way higher than that. There's no way. I, I mean, the, the, he'd have to stop and think, you know. I was thinking, you know, uh, there was a show, I don't know, a few years ago. It was called Three Wishes, and it was the same idea. A deserving person, uh, we want to give you whatever you dreamed about, whatever. Money's no object. Well, they, they only lasted one season, you know why? <laughs> because they, that could get pretty expensive, I would think. And so God's making the offer. Uh, it's not like that. Well, how long did Solomon pause to think? You know, I, I read this funny little story uh, about a guy who was in that situation. It's just a joke. A guy was in a cave looking for treasure, and he found an old lamp, and he rubbed it, and out came a genie. The genie said, I'll grant you three wishes, but your enemy will get double. So there's a long pause. He had to think. Got to figure this out. So he started thinking out loud, and he said, well, I wish I had a sprawling mansion. And the genie granted it, and his enemy got two mansions. Then the man said, I would like $100 million. And the genie said, that's good. Here you go. But your enemy now has $200 million. So the man goes, ah. He says, I know. Scare me half to death. <laughs> So here's a paraphrase of what went down uh, with Solomon's response. Wow, Lord, you've been so kind to my family, to my dad who loved and served you. You're still blessing my dad by blessing me and putting me on his throne. To be honest, I'm sitting on the throne instead of my father, King David, and his shoes are pretty hard to fill. I still feel like a little kid inside. I don't really know what I'm doing. Look at this nation. They're your chosen people. There are millions of them, and they belong to you. So here's what I ask. Give me wisdom to do a good job for you, leading this great nation of yours. Give me a discerning heart to always be able to figure out 
what's the right thing to do. He's really saying, this job is so much bigger than me. I need your help. That was a request that made God smile. The Hebrew for a discerning heart says a listening heart, a hearing heart, that it could hear you clearly. Uh, So I, I want us to see tonight that this great response was a response that was guided by gratitude. Do you hear that gratitude? He's humbled. He's saying, look at the mercy. Who am I? Who was my father? Who are the Jews that you are doing all of this for us? So that, what he felt was an obligation to God to serve him in his response to God's invitation to have whatever he wanted. He was guided by a sense of thankfulness. So you shouldn't, shouldn't, instead, uh, you're saying, what can you do for me? Lord, I should be saying, what could I do for you? You've shown me this incredible mercy. You've been good to my father. You're good to the nation. You're good to me. Uh, where would I be? My father was a little shepherd boy from a poor family. Look at us now, reigning like kings. And we are kings, he says. And so, uh, you know, a discerning heart of wisdom, not speculative wisdom just for the sake of being smart, but he's saying, give me the smarts to do the job that you created me to do. In other words, help me to become the person you created me to be. Give me the gifts and the ability to hit the bullseye for the intent you had when you created me. So my answer is, Make me the person that would bless you and expand your kingdom the most and and do your will. See, there's not a time here because of gratitude. It's not a time to think about himself. He says, give me the ability to reach my fullest potential for you. Um, One commentator said, could he have done better? Uh... Alexander McLaren, 1800, Scottish uh, pastor. He was a pastor for 65 years. He said, he criticized Solomon's answer by saying, yes, it was a good request. Yes, God was pleased. Could he have asked higher? How about asking for an undivided heart? Surely David, his father's longings for communion with God were even better than the wisdom Solomon was requesting. And had he asked for that, would we have chapter 11? I don't think so, right? And so, you know, Alexander, thank you very much for that. By the way, don't be envious of King Solomon, thinking, I wish God would make me that offer. He has. Let me read you a few of them. Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. If you abide in me, that was Matthew 7, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. That sounds pretty familiar, right? John 15, verse 7. Now this is our confidence, 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. Here's our confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, 1 John 
5 and 14. The trouble with us is that we don't bother asking very much about for, from God, James chapter 4 and verse 3. And when we do ask, we ask with, with weird motives, off motives. And, and so guidelines for asking and receiving. Number one, let gratitude for Christ and what he's done for you guide your heart when you ask requests. Number two, let it be your desire to bless God. Number three, purpose in your heart to advance his cause, to conform to his will, and make the goal of your request other-centered and Christ-pleasing, that you should benefit him and his cause. Let me be the top giver in the church. That's probably not a, a, a desire or a prayer that anybody in this church has ever prayed. I want to be the most sacrificial giver in this church. I want to be the one who volunteers the most. I want the kind of faith that can move a mountain for you, Lord. When, when this is all over, I want you to say, did anybody realize that this person right here prayed and was the most devoted privately to me than anybody else I knew? Those are things you could ask about, but those are things we don't ask for because we really don't want them. Because if we wanted them, we would ask for them. And if we wanted them, we would ask for them and we would receive them. That's what the word says. More godly character, uh, courage to share the gospel, a heart to serve, a love for others, a desire to be holy, the gift of mercy, uh, to impact the lost. When did you ever say, or have you, or maybe you have, uh, give me five, give me three. Give me three people at work. Line up three people for me, Lord, I'm gonna start praying for them. Show me three people at work that need you, that you will use me to affect their eternal destiny. Just give me three. I'll pray for them, I'll love them, I'll look for opportunities to serve them, I'm gonna win them. That's a request. He says, ask me for anything. He said to his disciples, up until now, you guys haven't asked me for anything. Ask I will give you whatever you ask in my name. These, but this is the kind of uh, theme that he means when he says, ask me for anything, I'll give you. Well, so you say, you say I, I want to worship you more. I, I want to spend more of my time in prayer and worship. These are requests that he says, I will, I will give you that. But we're often thinking about other uh, less spiritual things. The Lord's response, so cool. Verse 10, puts a, a smile on God's face. And, and here's the paraphrase for 11 through 14. Solomon, thank you for not making this all about you and, and for asking what everyone else always asks for. Give me a long life, give me lots of money, and please kill all my enemies. You know what? I'm tired of hearing that. I was very surprised to hear. I'm going to give you what you ask for, and guess what, Solomon? Uh, there'll never be another person with more insight than you, and P.S., I'm gonna throw in all the other things you could ask me for, but you did not as an added bonus. And if you're careful to obey me like your father did, then I will give you a long and happy life. 
So Solomon's thankful, and he realizes that the Lord had visited him in a, in a dream. He's happy. I love this. Then he threw a big party. You know, you know when God is working in somebody's heart when suddenly they're very generous. They're very generous. They cut you slack. Uh, they smile more. They give more. Because they just feel, ah, God is at work in me. God has blessed me. God has given me something I don't even deserve. Let, uh, can I pay for lunch? Can I pick up the tab? That's how you know. He goes home, and what does he do? He doesn't say, oh, me, 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 happy, happy days. I'm going to be the smartest man that ever lived. <laughs> he says, let's have a party. It's on me. God's been good to me. How can I bless you guys? That's just a beautiful thing. And so um, now let's finish up with the famous story of the smothered baby debacle. All right, because here now comes an example of how smart and how wise uh, this king is going to become. And you'll know why it's famous with the very first verse I read. Okay, verse 16. Now two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. Do I have everybody's attention? (laughs) One of them said, my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house. I had a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman also had a baby. We were alone. There was no one in the house but the two of us. During the night, this woman's son died because she lay on him. So she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while I, your servant, was asleep. She put him by her breast and put her dead son by mine. The next morning, I got up to nurse my son, and he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning light, I saw that it wasn't the son I had born. The other woman said, no, the living one is my son. The dead one is yours. But the first one insisted, no, the dead one is yours, and the living one is mine. And so they argued before the king. Yeah, I can imagine. The king said, All right, this one says, my son is alive and your son is dead, while while that one says, no, your son is dead and mine is alive. Then the king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword for the king. He then gave an order, cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. The woman whose son was alive was filled with compassion for her son and said to the king, please, my lord, Give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other one said, neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. And the king gave his ruling. Give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is his mother. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. All right, so Solomon's duplicity, Solomon's dream, and now Solomon's dilemma. Two women claim the same child as their own. Now, first of all, props to King Solomon for taking the case of two prostitutes. Uh, That's kind of nice. Probably very novel in his time. Um, I would assume it's because there's a baby involved and It stumped all the lower courts. There's no witnesses, no lie detectors, uh, no DNA testing, 
It's one women's word against the other, and both women really aren't reputable sorts. And so no wonder it had to go up to King Solomon. It's like, what are, who knows what to do here? So they bring it to the king. Now the plaintiff is the one who brings the case, and she comes in empty-handed, and she's the mom, and I'm gonna paraphrase now 17 through 21. So she says, oh king, we live in the same house, we have the same due date. I gave birth to a boy. Three days later, so did she. Sadly, her baby died in the night. So she creeps over to where I'm sleeping and swaps out her dead baby for my living one. I woke up, I realized the baby was dead. But in the sunlight, a real shocker. I said, now wait a second here, this isn't even my baby, it's yours. Well, the defendant starts yelling, liar, no way, your honor. This here baby is mine. She's lying. It was her baby that died. And they went back and forth screeching like two, you know, what should I say, felines? <laughs> I mean, it was uh, really very exciting. You had to be there. Solomon throws down the gavel and there's silence. So I imagine he gets a very impatient look on his face and a mischievous smile. And he's going to wink at the bailiff who's got a big sword. So he says, okay, one says he's mine, and that woman is lying. The other one says he's mine, and that woman is lying. You know what, folks, this could go on a really long time. I want to go home, have a little dinner with a few of my wives. (laughs) You know what, I really don't have time for this lady, so you know what I'm going to do? Listen, I've had it up to here with you. Be quiet. Be quiet. Listen, hey, bring a sword. Cut the kid in two. Silence. Out comes the sword. And mom, number one, whoa, no, 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 no. She can have the baby. I don't want a baby. I never wanted a baby. You have the baby. It's her baby, okay? Fine, don't touch the baby. And Solomon goes, we have found the mama. We have found the mama because maternal instincts are hard to cover up. And Solomon had the wisdom how to kind of flush that out and show who the true mother was. Now, you know, that story was so awesome. It went on YouTube, it got four million hits, and everybody everybody found out about it. And you know what, you, seriously have more than King Solomon had as far as wisdom goes. You've got, King Solomon lived a thousand years before Jesus, so that would be 3,000. You've got 3,000 years on him. Church history, you've got the Holy Spirit in a way that he didn't really have. You've got the gifts, the fullness. You've got wisdom from above. From the, from the Lord's mouth comes wisdom and understanding. If anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives without finding fault, fully, freely. Without finding fault means whoever asks for wisdom, he simply doesn't qualify you. He doesn't look at you and go, oh yeah, like I'm gonna give you wisdom. Let's talk about yesterday. He, that's what without finding fault means. He's not reviewing your life to see if you qualify to get the download of the wisdom you're asking for, which is wonderful. 
So shouldn't the world, like the world, look to Solomon and said, wow, man, hey, he's got something that we don't have. We're going to look to him for the answers. That's who we are. Troubled marriages should be coming to us and saying, hey, what's up with your marriage, man? What's the secret to your happy? The way you guys look at each other. You guys, do you even fight? Do you guys fight? Oh, yeah, oh, sure, we fight. But Oh, yeah, you guys don't fight. Parenting, look at those kids. How do you get them to, to, to behave like that? How do, you get, how do you get that kind of warm, loving thing? How come I never hear you having trouble with your checkbook and overspending and budgeting problems? The world needs to see in us that we have godly wisdom and we live by it. And so they're attracted like they were to Solomon. Wow, you guys know how to troubleshoot. You're not perfect. You got problems, of course. But, you know, there's something different about you. You handle life differently. We've got to keep in step with God's spirit. We've got to kind of rise to the occasion and put into practice this kind of wisdom so the world will be looking at us and coming to us that we might introduce the one who gives the wisdom, the one who would freely give to them if they come in faith. So in reflecting on tonight, if I go to the points and just think Solomon's duplicity, I think of this. Love the Lord with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength. No rival loves because it's the rival love that'll take you down. Number two, Solomon's dream. Our Father God invites his children to ask him for things. Let's ask with humble gratitude according to his will. To do great things, to be great things for him and his kingdom and his cause. Put a smile on his face. Change the world through me. Did you pray before you came here? Lord, let the church be better off as a result of me having come and worshiped there than when I hadn't, than before I came. Because you came with expectation. I've come here to find three people to encourage. I've come here tonight to give. I've come here to strengthen. I've come here to encourage the pastor and his family. I've come here to encourage people in the pews. I've come here to pray. I'm praying while the pastor's preaching. I'm worshiping. Let us broaden our horizons about how we live our Christian life and some of the things we're asking God to do in us and through us make us this kind of person. I'm sorry I'm preaching Solomon's dream again. However, I can't stop. Number three. (laughs) Number three, Solomon's dilemma. The least significant Christian has more wisdom than the smartest unbeliever on the planet. We need to live with such wisdom so that unbelievers can sit up and take notice so we can point them in turn to the one who could save them, set them free. Amen? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this marvelous chapter and the lessons. Oh, man, help these truths just flow over us and saturate our souls and, and knit 
this truth into the fabric of who we are, some of these thoughts tonight can be life-changing. The way we think about you, the way we think about us, the way we think about our place in your world. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen. The Holy Spirit knows that, and he's calling all of us to greater devotion and greater service. But let me give you an example of how I know that the Lord is at work and there are Christians who are very engaged here. Um, Sunday, I said exactly what I said to you about hiring and retaining a commercial real estate guy. The offering was large. I didn't ask, I didn't say anything about a need. I just mentioned that we retained him. And Christians were thinking, I know what that means. That means it's gonna cost some money. And, and they just gave. People are encouraging one another. I see people praying in little corners. I, I, people come up, I've been praying for you all week. These are where I get these ideas to preach about because I see them all happening. So I'm spurring people on. If you apply some of the truths that we talked about tonight, your whole life will change from a self-focus and a struggle to blessing and joy, fullness of life and contentment by getting your, your eyes off of yourself and onto God and his agenda and his kingdom. And it's so easy to do and it happens to me as well. Get distracted and self-absorbed and all kinds of things and I suffer, I just suffer. Miserable, depressed, whining and difficult to be around. No amening right there. <laughs> so let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the grace that when we do get it, just a wonderful experience to see you work in wise ways in us and through us in powerful ways. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray more and more, conform us, Lord, and lead us with gentleness and, and tenderness in the way that you prepared for us to go. Help us apply these truths and be a blessing to you and to others. In Jesus' name, amen.